Hi, this is Bill Whalen, your host of the Hoover Institution's Matter of Policy and Politics podcast. Here at Hoover, we're taking a break, what we call a quiet week, to charge our batteries, connect with friends and loved ones, and celebrate Thanksgiving properly. On that note, I thought it was appropriate to share the following podcast with you back when this was the Area 45 show. Recorded a few years ago before COVID disrupted our lives, it's a conversation I had with the Hoover Institution's Neil Ferguson about giving thanks. Why'd I ask Neil to do the podcast? Other than the fact that he's witty, articulate, and one of the most brilliant historians on the planet. Because Neil Ferguson, born a Scotsman, is an American by choice. And at the time of this podcast, he and his remarkable wife, Ion Hersey Alley, were in the early phase of a new life here at Hoover in California. So I hope you enjoyed listening to Neil reflect on Thanksgiving. And after the holiday, we'll be back with new installments of Matters of Policy and Politics. My guest today in our recording in our recording studio deep in the heart of the Stanford University campus is Neil Ferguson. No introduction necessary, but he gets one anyway. Neil Ferguson is the Milbank Family Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and a Senior Fellow at the Center for European Studies at Harvard, where he served for 12 years as the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of History. He is the author of no less than 15 books. That includes The Square and the Tower, which was published earlier this year. Neil Ferguson writes a weekly column for the Sunday Times of London and the Boston Globe. And on Thanksgiving Day, Neil, you will be where doing what? I cannot reveal my location for security reasons, but I'll be with... uh, I think a majority of my children, somewhere that I hope will be snowy. This is an awkward question, but do you celebrate, I don't know if I'm asking if you're Jewish and it's Christmas, but do you celebrate Thanksgiving? Yes, we do. We are at least partly an American family. I became an American citizen this year. My wife, Ayan, also a Hoover fellow, is an American citizen. And we have two sons born in the USA. So we'll be celebrating Thanksgiving, along with my English-born, green-card-carrying daughter. So, yeah. And is this Thanksgiving or this is deep Thanksgiving? Because Thanksgiving is food and friends and drink and merriment. Deep Thanksgiving is an excess of food, followed by an excess of shopping, followed by an excess of just American splendor. I don't think it's deep if that means shopping. I hate shopping. I am the last holdout against the consumer society. You're not a Black Friday guy. Absolutely not. I detest all that. But it'll be deep in the sense that I like the idea of a day of thanksgiving. I used to say to my older children when they were down in the dumps, count your blessings. And I would make them go through all the things they had to be thankful for. I'm not sure how effective this was, but none of them, so far as I know, is in therapy. So what a good idea to, to sit down and dedicate a day to being thankful. So we're deep thanksgivers in that sense. So I thought since uh, Thanksgiving is approaching, Neil, and since you are a prolific writer, 2018 gave you a bountiful harvest of topics to talk about and to write about. So I'd like to go through a few things which you discuss this year, and let's discuss why you give thanks. And I think the first thing we should start with, Neil, is the fact that yesterday was the 100th anniversary of the war to end all wars. It was Armistice Day, November the 11th. You wrote a column in which you talked about the fact that your family participated in the war, your father's father took up arms and fought. You also mentioned in passing that when you were a boy going to school that you had to take up a rifle and learn how to shoot. That struck me as a little unusual. Is this a vestige from the Second World War and defending the home island, or is this just part of a British education? Why were you shooting a rifle? It's not that unusual to have a cadet force mm-hmm. at a private school. Private I went school. to the Glasgow Academy. Mm-hmm. What makes... That school unusual is that it was dedicated as a war memorial, the entire school, after World War I. And so we uh, spent our school days in some measure in the shadow of the war. There was a war memorial at the entrance of the street, Colebrook Terrace, where the school is located. And inside the main building, another war memorial. And above that war memorial stands the unforgettable motto, say not that the brave die. And the names of all the former pupils of the school who did die in the war are engraved there. So the combined cadet force at Glasgow Academy was more than just a vestige of previous eras. I think we all understood 
that it was preparation for the next world war. And we as Glasgow boys, knowing that our grandfathers had served in the previous wars, fully expected to serve in the next one. I was not a good cadet. I was actually a kind of conscientious objector for the reason that I'd been introduced to the poetry of Wilfred Owen and other writers of the First World War era. And I couldn't really reconcile their condemnation of war with the odd, disconcerting experience of learning to fire an old rifle. Uh, so I, I hated it. Maybe I've always been hostile to hierarchical institutions and armies are very hierarchical, but I think it was very difficult for my teenage mind to, to be comfortable with that kind of military training when I was at the same time being taught in English literature that something very terrible had happened between 1914 and 1918. You've written a book called The Pity of War. Um, how would you explain World War II to your children, to generations who cannot fathom the, the scope of that war, the carnage of that war, the, the brutality of that war? I can explain World War II much more easily than World War I. World War I was the, the war that seemed to cast the longer shadow mm -hmm. growing up in the UK because, in fact, the impact in terms of military casualties was greater in World War I. World War I gets all kinds of misrepresentation, not least in the popular media. The bottom line, in my view, is that the great European empires that had spent the previous hundred years carving up the world went to war with one another. And though they'd come close to doing that before, this was the big one in the sense that they all piled in. And for four and a quarter years, they fought to decide which of them would be dominant in Europe. Although the war was fought in many different theaters, the central question was whether or not Germany would be dominant in Europe. And France had very little choice but to fight the war since the German war plan necessitated the invasion of, of France. Britain chose to intervene on the side of France and that ensured that Germany didn't win. I think if Britain had stayed out, Germany would have won a relatively short, largely European war. But Britain's intervention turned it into a global war because Britain's empire was the truly global empire. And Britain had the resources to check the German attempt at European power. That's the essence of, of why the war happened. You can get into the weeds of Serbia's bid for dominance in the Balkans or Belgian neutrality, which was the formal reason Britain, Britain intervened. But I think that becomes a distraction. The central issue was that this was a war of empires over the dominance of Europe, and Germany lost. But you can't really say that Britain won in that just 20 years after the Treaty of Versailles, which was supposed to solve or at least end the German question. The Germans were back. Right. And the Second World War had to be fought. Now, the Second World War is much easier to explain in that by 1939, Germany was under the leadership of a genocidal madman, and there was simply no way that Germany could be allowed to win. I, I've argued in my book, The Pity of War, that Britain could at least have waited in 1914, as it had when the French Revolutionary Wars broke out and intervened at a time when it would have perhaps been better prepared. But in 1939, it was already too late. Britain should actually have gone to war in 1938. Mm -hmm. So there's a big difference between the two wars. You really had no choice but to stand up to Hitler. I think there was an element of choice in 1914. Mr. Macron brought up uh, the topic of nationalism. 
uh, during the festivities in France. Was that the right time to have that conversation? I found uh, President Macron's uh, speech quite annoying because I think there's a false dichotomy being created here between nationalism and patriotism. And I hear this echoed in the United States. It seems to me that these two terms are not that different. And it's rather silly to say that nationalism is, nationalism is wicked and patriotism is good. Right. Um, I mean, that, that strikes me as, as somewhat Jesuitical. In truth, nationalism in the 19th century was an idea closely associated with liberalism and you couldn't really have one without the other. In the course of the 20th century, nationalism got mixed up with bad company. Most obviously when, as the great historian Friedrich Meinecke argued, it, it fused with socialism to produce national socialism. Right. And I think the meaningful distinction really is between the different varieties of nationalism that we've seen in the past 200 years. Nationalism can be the basis for building a free society. The founders of the United States were nationalists. They were engaged in building a nation after 1776. Throughout the 19th century, Italian, German, and many other uh, nationalities forged or sought to forge nation states that were in terms of political freedom an improvement on the monarchies and empires that they challenged. So from a historian's vantage point the distinction between nationalism and patriotism is silly and just the kind of thing that I've come to expect from President Macron who has long specialized in the kind of platitude that appeals to those people who would like to shore up the project of European integration, a project that is in grave difficulties, and perhaps, perhaps also to shore up the notion of globalization. What I think they're really saying is that nationalism is the kind of terrible word that Donald Trump uses, whereas patriotism is perfectly all right in polite company in, in Paris. So I thought it was a slightly silly speech. Which, I wish they had all just focused on the sacrifice of those millions of mostly very young men who fought, who fought the war rather than seeking to make political points in in 2018. Right. Let's focus on another offering on the Ferguson Thanksgiving table, and that's Silicon Valley, which we technically are sitting in right now. We're in the northernmost part of the valley, but the Valley Neil is a columnist writer. It is a target-rich environment for you. You've been out here. How long have you been in California now? More than two years. Two and a half, nearly. So you've had two and a half years to look at this industry up close, to look at the personalities, to look at the issues, to look at the way life is lived out here. What do you think? When I arrived, I was very struck by the, the atmosphere of, of hubris. Mm -hmm. The general view was that Silicon Valley really didn't need a historian because history began with the Google IPO or the founding of Facebook, right. and everything before that was just the Stone Age. And I tried to make the argument that history had a lot to teach the people running the big technology companies, and if they weren't prepared to listen to historical arguments, then history would come and probably shove those arguments down their throats. That's pretty much what has been happening as it's become clear just how much the social media companies in particular, but I think it's, it's true more generally of big technology, were used and abused during the 2016 election people have begun to ask hard questions about how those companies are run and for whose benefit they're run. And the arguments that I made in The Square and the Tower, which was published actually more than a year ago, look pretty much compelling at this point. The argument I made was that 
by allowing the public sphere to be taken over by companies like Facebook and mm -hmm. Google, not to mention Twitter, we, we ran the risk of undermining the stability of our democracy because when 80% of Americans essentially get their news via either Facebook or Google, they get their news filtered by algorithms that are calibrated to maximize their engagement, their time online. And if that's the goal, then what you end up with is a diet of extreme views and, and fake news. So we now realize that not only did foreign powers, notably Russia, meddle in the election process, and they were able to do, to do that because the tech companies really didn't try very hard to stop them. But more importantly, because I don't think Russian content was decisive, more importantly, the context within which the election took place had been seriously contaminated by content that the technology platforms essentially pushed through their networks. And much of that content was was toxic. So there's been a backlash. Mm -hmm. The backlash is now quite decidedly to be felt in Washington. And I think one reason that these companies are having a very miserable second half financially, uh, you only need to look at the stock price of the so-called FANG companies since the middle of the year, is that regulation is coming in some shape or form. And whatever happens, it seems unlikely that the the business models will be unaffected. Let's suppose there were guests at the Ferguson household here in Silicon Valley, and those guests were either a fellow named Shakespeare, William to most of us, Will to you, or a couple of gentlemen named Gilbert and Sullivan. And they were tasked with writing about what goes on in Silicon Valley. Would Shakespeare write, would he write tragedies? Would he look at the Zuckerbergs and Benioffs and Dorseys and people like that? Would he see them as ultimately tragic figures like a Lear? Would he write a comedy? What about Gilbert and Sullivan? Wouldn't they just have a field day satirizing this? Well, at times it seems more Gilbert and Sullivan than Shakespeare, mm -hmm. although one shouldn't underestimate how seriously the titans of Silicon Valley take themselves. If you read The New Yorker, and I do that less and less, right. you might have come across a recent interview with Mark Zuckerberg mm -hmm. in which he revealed, I thought rather amusingly, that his favorite historical character is Augustus Caesar. He's a great enthusiast for the history of imperial Rome. And the governor of California. And there's a thought. Uh, when, when the chief executive of, uh, and founder of, of one of the most powerful companies in the world is fantasizing about being Augustus, maybe it is time to send for but Neil, Shakespeare. He, but he is, the, he, is the moder he is the very major model of a modern major mogul. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's tempting to go down the the pirates of Palo Alto <laughs> route to think of another Gilbert and Sullivan operetta. But I don't think we should, because I think this is too serious mm -hmm. a problem. To have the public sphere dominated by a handful of companies motivated right. solely by mm -hmm. the imperative to sell ads isn't healthy. And I think it's having a dangerous effect on American political life one one aspect of which, amongst many, is the tendency for the pendulum to swing from one extreme to the other, which is also happening in the United Kingdom. One one casualty of of the this uh, of the social network age is the middle ground. The middle ground's become a killing field. If you try to take a centrist position on any of the great issues of the day, you'll be gunned down from both sides. At least metaphorically, one now, hopes not. Now we're literally. back to World War One and trench warfare. Yeah, so it's no man's land, right. the center ground in the age of social media, because as I try to show in the book, the network platforms are engines of polarization. They're designed right. to push people out across the political spectrum. And for politics, I think that's a very, it's a very dangerous thing. It leads, to, it leads to 
an increasingly bitter language, and I think at a certain point, bitter language isn't enough, and people begin to yearn for actual violence. You notice this after the election when Trump comes out and says, well, maybe I can work with Nancy Pelosi, and Nancy Pelosi comes out and suggests maybe we can work with the White House. And what does that produce? A lot of rolling the eyes on both sides of the aisle. Uh, this is a good segue to go to, to get into the next uh, offering on your table, and that is the two-party system and the Republican Party beholden to Trump and the Democratic Party that really can't decide if it's Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton. There was a Wall Street Journal piece yesterday saying Hillary is coming back. Hillary Foro, I think they called her. She's coming back as a liberal in 2020. Trump should be so lucky. He should be. Is it the party of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? Is it the party of Michael Avenatti? Yeah. So this is a banquet for which to write. Well, in some ways, the great spectacle that we have to look forward to or dread will be the battle for the Democratic nomination in 2020. Mm -hmm. And that is going to be a reality TV show like nothing in the history of modern American politics. It'll make 2016 and the Republican Party seem sedate. There'll certainly be more than 30 people shooting for this role, and you've mentioned only a handful of them just there. I think this question of do you go far left or do you tack to the center is is an easy one to answer in the age of of the network platforms tacking to the center is bound to fail and the candidates that that try to position themselves that way i think won't last long because there will be so much more energy on the left uh, of the democratic party we've already seen that during these midterms that the search is on for somebody who can who can channel that uh beto o'rourke or is it beto i still haven't worked it out in texas though he lost his challenge against senator ted cruz is being talked up as the next big thing in democratic politics it'll be someone newish i think which is why hillary clinton's hopes seem completely fantastical and I'm afraid the same goes for Joe Biden and and Mike Bloomberg. The appetite is for somebody who is both young and progressive. In that sense, I think it's, it's really a hunt for the next Obama that's beginning and it'll be fascinating to see who wins it. I have a little private bet that Kamala Harris will become the nominee because I think California is looming ever larger in the Democratic Party and I think it will be very important indeed who has not only Californian backing but Silicon Valley backing and I bet she does. Uh, Partly because she did a very good job of making life look difficult for Mark Zuckerberg during Mm -hmm. those hearings in Washington earlier this year. And uh, as somebody said to me who's well informed, She was the only person who made Mark sweat. Um, And he followed that by saying, so we'll really back her all the way. So watch, I think, watch out for Kamala Harris. And I don't think anybody at this point should be complacent on the Republican side because I think the midterms were not good news for the Republicans. And I think it's going to be very tough indeed uh, for President Trump to win re-election despite all the advantages that traditionally the incumbent has. Um, So... The question is, can anything come along uh, to occupy that middle ground? There was a good study published a a few weeks ago by a bunch of political scientists and sociologists trying to look at the American electorate by slicing it ideologically or politically. And the argument they made is that essentially the the extremes are very noisy, but they're quite small. Mm -hmm. There's a big exhausted majority in the middle of people who've kind of got worn down by the shrill quality of of Twitter politics, they are bound to be dissatisfied because their set of preferences can't be met by either the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. This is a point that our, our colleague Mo Fiorina has obvious, often made. But the big question is, is there any way at any point that somebody can satisfy the exhausted majority? Right. And I think John Kasich might have a go at that. Whether he has a chance of success given the structures of American politics, I would doubt. But I think if there is a 
third candidate making a pitch for the centre ground, that candidate will, will do quite well and certainly well enough to affect the outcome. It's anybody's guess what happens in November 2020 at this point. I think a good starting point for any discussion of politics these days is it's going to be really close. Mm -hmm. And that's my current view. Kamala Harris is interesting. She had a good Tuesday night, Neil, in this regard, and that's better O'Rourke losing in Texas. If O'Rourke wins that race, he claims the height of Ted Cruz, and he is the new shiny thing in Democratic circles, which she has been for the last two years, the new shiny object. She now takes a couple steps back in that line, so she still occupies that space, number one. And number two, you're right, California is hugely important to the Democratic existence. When the votes are finally counted out here, and we see the new numbers in the House of Representatives, Neil, one in five members of the Democratic caucus will come from California, right. about 45 out of 230. So it is hugely important in that respect. Um, so there's a school of thought in terms of going after Trump. You hear Democrats going at different angles. I mentioned that you know, they're looking at a Hillary Clinton 4-0. There is, well, if you bring back Joe Biden, he can win a general election. But history tells us that that argument doesn't work well in primaries. Kamala Harris comes along. <clears throat> then there's a school of thought that you fight fire with fire. You bring somebody from outside of the political system and put them in, like an Oprah run a celebrity like Trump. But you didn't mention Oprah or Michelle Obama or someone like that. I'm a little skeptical that that would work, partly because the Democratic Party is more than the Republican Party, I think, a party of professional politicians. Mm -hmm. And I think the networks of, of influence and power within that party are in some ways much more resilient than their equivalents in the Republican Party uh, that was why Hillary Clinton was the nominee in, in 2016, and, and Donald Trump won the Republican nomination, defeating all the established candidates. My sense is that the Democrats run a tighter ship, for better or for worse, and won't want an outsider to scoop all the, the prizes, the biggest prize of all. So I'm going to stick with the notion that it's, it's a youngish, progressive looking and sounding candidate that picks up the energy within the Democratic base that was on full display in the midterms. That very high turnout number tells you the energy levels high. It's high on the Republican side too, partly because the Democrats so miscalculated on the confirmation of, of Brett Kavanaugh. I right. think if they hadn't gone down the disastrous road of trying to stop that, it might have been even worse for the Republicans uh, the other night. So here's a question. The, the argument is now well established that President Trump has a solid 40, 42% uh, base of people who will stick with him through thick and thin. Correct. And for that reason, he's impossible to dislodge, even if you are a Republican uh, who can't bear him, even if you're a kind of never-Trumper. I wonder if that sense of engagement will hold up through another two years. There's a sense in which exhaustion, monotony, uh, are the enemies for President Trump. This this act could get old. And I I wonder if it's possible for for Trump and his base to remain uh as tightly intertwined as they as they currently are over the next two years, particularly when there is going to be a relentless barrage from the House of Representatives directed at the president. This is going to be very different now that every committee worth talking about is going to be using subpoena powers and running a parallel campaign against the president to, to special counsel Robert Mullers. It's going to be very, very difficult, I think, for President Trump to maintain the loyalty of his base under what will be a relentless campaign of attrition against him. So we'll see. That's one reason that I'm probably sounding a little bit uh, uneasy about where we're heading. I'm uneasy because 
for all the president's personal flaws, I think in many respects, particularly in economic respects, there has been an improvement in American government in the last two years, and there's been a big improvement in certain aspects of foreign policy. And what I'm really dreading is the pendulum swinging to the other side and undoing such progress as there has been. When I look at what happened in the UK in the period after Brexit, it took a remarkably short time for the pendulum to swing to the far left in the sense that the Labour Party got taken over by Jeremy Corbyn and his far leftist cronies. And Britain, it seems to me, is very close indeed to a Corbyn government. Mm -hmm. So one way I think about this is that in the polarised culture that the internet and the network platforms have created, we have a, a tendency for the populism of the right to have a go. And then if that doesn't work out really well, really quickly, the populism of the left then suddenly becomes the flavor of of the moment and that's a that's a dispiriting prospect on both sides of the atlantic is there room at the ferguson thanksgiving table for a heaping course of political correctness no i mentioned this now because you, you used <laughs> Please, to be in massachusetts no. which meant that you used to have senator elizabeth warren to answer your constituency needs and if we want to relive the elizabeth warren indian saga for a moment i think it's interesting in this regard neil um, it comes down to an issue of identity politics and that we are in an age now where there's at least one political party that wants to thrive on identity and victimhood and push that forward as a narrative. And it's fascinating. A, a friend brought this up this point that at the same time Elizabeth Warren is struggling uh, with the issue of uh, identity politics, there's a commercial on television. And the commercial is for, I think, it's Ancestry.com. And it shows this fellow wearing laden hosen and said, when I grew up, I thought we were German. So it shows him doing a German dance. I did my test and found out actually I'm 20% Scottish. Now he's doing a jig. We have to identify as to what groups we belong to in this country now. With the Democrats back in power in the House, at least with 2020 coming up, it seems that we're going to be in an ever more animated conversation about grievances, about identity, about who we are as a society. I felt that the weak... Elizabeth Warren published the results of her Ancestry.com style DNA test was the week identity politics ate itself or at least began to chew on itself because that was also the week that the case started against the uh, the Harvard admissions uh, office. Right. My, my old friends at Harvard have come a cropper because it's pretty clear that some kind of unstated quota was being imposed to limit the proportion of Asians at, at Harvard. It is fascinating, by the way, Neil, when you go inside of Harvard admissions policy and you look at the so-called tips in terms of what gives you an advantage to get and so forth, this is not something Harvard wants to have a public conversation about. Exactly. Harvard is an overwhelmingly liberal institution and long has been. I think... Uh, when our colleague Harvey Mansfield retires, if he ever does that, mm -hmm. it will feel a little bit like the last conservative right. leaving Harvard but do you who like, should turn do you, out the do light. You like, do you like to write about this topic? I, I think it's important that we should recognize the organized hypocrisy at the heart of elite education. The disconnect between an institution whose faculty is overwhelmingly to the left of center and it, the process whereby that admission selects its undergraduate intake needs to be discussed. I said that at the time this story first broke, which is quite a few years ago now. I I remember being slightly dismayed that nobody really wanted to talk about it. And I, having grown up and begun my career in the Oxford and Cambridge system, was accustomed to, well, dons choosing the students that they wanted to teach. We did admissions ourselves mm -hmm. through examinations and, and interviews. Rather a time-consuming process, but at least you, 
you know what you're you're doing. And I I used to find the sort of black box quality of Harvard admissions slightly odd. And I I guess I learned by doing about the large proportion of students there as legacies. Uh, I learned by, I suppose, inquiry about the ways in which the admissions office made its decisions. And I always felt uneasy about it because I'm just an old-fashioned curmudgeonly meritocrat. I just want to teach the smartest people. And they all have to have been educated to a certain level to be able to cope with an elite university. My habit at Harvard was to be a tough grader because that discouraged the weaker brethren from from showing up. Mm. But yeah, I think this is an important conversation to have, whether it's Elizabeth Warren's DNA exposing the absurdity of her ever having been categorized or ever having self-identified as a minority faculty member. What a joke. Right. It's equally important that we should recognize the, the organized hypocrisy of, of Ivy League admissions. I think until we start having those conversations, identity politics will be hard to resist because what's happened is that elite education as a whole, this is not just a Harvard phenomenon, has fully embraced the, the ethos of identity politics to the extent that in a polarized America, academia is all on one side of the divide, almost entirely. And that's not healthy. It's not particularly prudent, I think, for the universities to become so unrepresentative of the society they sit on top of. The best antidote to what's become known in academic circles as intersectionality, the endless obsession with the hierarchy of, of grievance, is to try and reaffirm the principles of the Enlightenment and remind everybody that all people are created equal. And it doesn't really matter where your ancestors came from. That was the whole principle upon which the United States was founded. And to me, the endless emphasis on one's identity, as if there's a sort of trump card you can play in any argument that says, as a gay woman of color, I'll, I'll defeat anything you say as a straight white man. That just seems antithetical to the spirit of, of the United States. An interesting disconnect going into the Tuesday election, Neil, was that if you look at the entertainment industry, you look at journalism in America, and you look at academia, they're all dominated by the left. The loudest voices come from the left. The predominant thinking is the left. If you're an outspoken conservative, you will certainly suffer in the entertainment industry. Unless you work at Fox News, you're going to suffer in media. The left controls those levers. But if you look at the political system in America, Neil, going into election night before the Democrats took over the House, there was a Republican president. Republicans controlled the Congress. Republicans had 33 of, of, of 50 governorships. Republicans had 66 of 99 state legislators. They had about a 1,000-person advantage in state legislators. Democrats did not have a toehold in terms of political power in America. So a fascinating structure we set up. And I think the trend that I would zoom in on is one in which institutions end up on one side or other of the great divide. If the universities have all ended up on the progressive side, what if the judiciary ends up on the other side? Right. What if Mitch McConnell has actually got a secret formula for maintaining Republican control of the Senate and thereby maintaining uh, a, a conservative leaning in the judiciary? What, what happens then? Uh, I mean, I think what will be fascinating is under those circumstances how loud the calls will, will be from the progressive side to, to change the system. This is the, uh, the tyranny of the majority tendency, mm -hmm. which looks at every result in terms of the popular vote and, and argues that if the, if the outcome doesn't tally with the popular vote, then the Constitution must be, uh, must be amended. Right. The Electoral College has been a regular target for this kind of attack. Uh, the Senate is now under that same attack. Uh, no doubt the Supreme Court will 
come under that attack if if the current trend continues for conservative justices to be appointed. I find this highly amusing because back in 2016, we were told that President Trump posed a terrible threat to the Constitution and American tyranny was about to be established. Well, at this point, two years on, the Constitution is working exactly as normal in the sense that the checks and balances kicked in and we had an absolutely standard midterm backlash against the party of the president. And what do we hear? Complaints from the left that the Constitution's rigged against them. So I don't know who the bigger constitutional threat is these days, but my guess is it's not, it's not actually President Trump. And let's close with President Trump because he obviously would be the biggest dish on any Thanksgiving table. Um, whoever set up neilferguson.com did a very good job, Neil, because you can go onto one side of it and see all of your columns for the past year. So easy peasy for me to see what you've been writing. And you know what? I saw the word Trump all over the place. You've written a lot about that man in the past year. Now, is this a function, Neil, if you're writing for the Times of London and trying to explain this country and Trump to a European audience? Or is Trump just that interesting on a weekly basis to write about? I think the column is unquestionably designed first and foremost to explain what's going on in the world mm -hmm. to a British audience. Though I find it translates pretty well into, in, into an American version with a little bit of pruning. And you can't really have a conversation about world politics today that, that leaves Donald Trump out. Now, I do think there's a, an unhappy tendency for all conversations to end up being about him. And not every subject benefits from that. I particularly found it objectionable over uh, Remembrance Day weekend and, and Veterans Day that so many journalists were writing about President Trump's alleged diplomatic faux pas rather than about the memory of the the fallen of World War One. This is not visiting the cemetery. Yeah. The question of whether the rain grounded his helicopter seems to me fairly unimportant in the great scheme of things. So the key here, I think, is to try to keep Donald Trump in proportion. And one of the regular themes of my my weekly writing is precisely to do that. Donald Trump is not king of the United States. The presidency under the Constitution has quite circumscribed powers. And as you just mentioned, Bill, what's going on uh, in not only Congress, uh, but also in the states, uh, in governorships and in state assemblies, that's really important because the United States remains by design a relatively decentralized polity as compared with, say, China or for that matter, Russia. So I think when talking about President Trump, the challenge is to keep him in perspective and not allow him to become the subject and object of, of everything that, that you write. I think that is a trap into which liberal journalists have fallen repeatedly over the past three years. They have bought Donald Trump's essential assertion that it's all about him. Well, to him, it clearly is all about him. Uh, he's a kind of Olympian of solipsism. But if you, if you fall into that way of thinking about the world, we'll call it the Trump vortex, then you supply him with the vital weapon to win re-election, which is his dominance of the narrative. Whoever emerges as the Democratic candidate, and it could be somebody we haven't even mentioned, such as the quirkiness of Democratic politics, that person will really struggle to get column inches and airtime to become a story comparable in its interest value with President Trump. Even as things go badly for him, President Trump still remains the number one topic of conversation. And by the way, I travel a great deal. It's true everywhere.
I can't think of a country I have been to in the last 12 months where he did not somehow appear on the front page of, of the newspaper and come up in every conversation at every meal. You notice it's a that, strange thing. You notice that around here in Silicon Valley, Neil, if you go into a restaurant and if you eavesdrop on other conversations, odds are somebody within proximity is talking about Trump. Usually you're upset about Trump given where we live. Right. You walk by the Starbucks in Stanford Mall and usually somebody is saying something about Trump with an expletive in front of it. Right. He, he, is, on, he is in people's heads. Yes. And I sometimes make it uh, a rule if I'm talking about something that I regard as unrelated to the president, not to refer to him. Mm-hmm. I actually invoke Harry Potter's uh, euphemism for, or rather not Harry Potter's, all the other characters in Harry Potter's euphemism for Lord Voldemort, uh, he who shall not be named, or you know who. Because there's, there's, I think, a certain need for us all to reduce the proportion of our conversation that is about, about him, that there is much that we can discuss without reference to Donald Trump. I'll give you just one example. President Trump embarked on uh, an economic policy of America first. An important part of that policy has been to target China, and in particular the bilateral trade deficit between the United States and China. What has happened in the last two years? The bilateral trade deficit between the United States and China has grown. And it has grown despite the president because there are other forces at work in the world economy that are not, strange to say, under his control. And sometimes it helps to step back. Maybe this is the historian talking here. To step back and ask the Tolstoy question. What are the forces? What is the power that moves nations? In War and Peace, which is my favorite book, Tolstoy repeatedly points out that only Napoleon really thinks he's in sole charge of historical events. Only Napoleon has the illusion that it's his order that causes all the upheaval to occur. In reality, Tolstoy says, it's a multitude of of decisions by individuals, historical forces that nobody quite controls, that determine the events of the French invasion of Russia and its failure. I think that's the right way to think about the historical process. And as we sit down to our Thanksgiving feast, I will be making sure we don't talk about (laughs) President Trump, not because we disrespect him, but just because we want to keep him in perspective. He's only a man. He's only the president of the United States. Yes, it's an important job, but it was designed by the founders not to be too important. And Tolstoy teaches us that... The historical process isn't really about great men, or for that matter, wicked men. It's about, it's about ordinary people and how their decisions sum together to produce historical outcomes that often nobody intends. A good segue to my last question. If we're not going to talk about Donald Trump at the Thanksgiving table, Neil, what should Americans be giving thanks for in 2018? Firstly, they need to be thankful for the fact that they live and often were born in the luckiest, most successful country in history. And despite all the bad news we consume on a daily basis, some of it terrible, whether it's mass shootings or wildfires, we need to remind ourselves how bloody lucky we are to be here. So much luckier than my grandfather's generation who if I think of of my two grandfathers were born in to what we would now consider poverty and who had the great misfortune of having their their young adult who turned completely upside down by the horrific events of World War One and World War Two. My generation has been extraordinarily lucky not to have had to fight World War III. Uh, so we find ourselves in, in a situation of, of extraordinary good fortune. Here, here I'm going to echo a former Harvard colleague, Steve Pinker. By almost any material measure, mankind is, is better off than it's ever been. You've never had it so good. Sure, we can blow it. 
It may be that we are in the process of blowing it. But right now, as you sit down to your, your turkey, you are part of that extraordinarily fortunate generation of human beings to have been born in the late 20th century, early 21st century, a time of unmatched prosperity and technological advance. Not only that, but you've been born or you've migrated to the most successful country in the world, secure with respect to potential invaders in a way that very few countries are, and blessed with a political system that has been so well designed that it can somehow withstand our tendency to swing from one political extreme to another with a kind of absurdly high frequency. That is something to be really, really thankful for. And it brings me back to telling my my children to count their blessings. I think it's very important to just list them all. And anybody living in this country, even if they have not had great luck in their in their lives, compared with everybody else, is really sitting remarkably pretty. And I'd be surprised if if your listeners ran out of blessings uh, as they counted them before they get to their tenth finger. Because we all have, I think, at least ten things to be incredibly thankful for this year. And Neil Ferguson, I'm thankful for you having this conversation with me. I hope you and your family have a wonderful Thanksgiving wherever that undisclosed location may be. Thank you, Bill. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our show. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Tell your friends about us. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hooverinst. That's spelled at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Neil Ferguson is on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at nfergus. That is spelled N-F-E-R-G-U-S, at nfergus. I'd also refer you to his many great opuses, the latest being Doom, the Politics of Catastrophe. You can find all of Neil Ferguson's brilliant writing at Amazon.com. And you can check out Neil on Hoover's Goodfellows broadcast that we try to do weekly with his fellow Hoover Senior Fellows, H.R. McMaster and John Cochran. The Hoover Institution is online at www.hoover.org. While you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Neil Ferguson and his colleagues to your inbox weekdays. And check out our lineup of podcasts, which you'll find under the Publications tab on the homepage. Then you'll see Podcast on the bottom left side of the page. You can subscribe to as many as you like. You can also sign up for Hoover's monthly Pod Blast that sends you the best of our work. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Matters of Policy and Politics. On behalf of my Hoover colleagues, we hope you enjoy the holiday and that you have plenty for which to be thankful. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.